Hello, welcome to Derp's Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mago. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about indie game development. Before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? Well, on this podcast, we like to talk about games. And um, today, I, I don't know, today I saw a thing, I saw it and it bothered me, <laughs> I tweeted about it. And then we decided to make that the the, the episode of the podcast, so... Um, yeah, I don't know. I, this is this is something that has been on my mind for a while, right? Like I talked about the dunk. I talked about it a little bit in the back half a couple of episodes ago when it came to the donkey stuff, right? Um, how sort of there are a lot of sort of weird conceptions about the way that indie games are made, how the market sort of like works, um, what the what the kind of like publisher space sort of like works like. Um, and I just want to take it. Let's let, let's take an episode to talk through some of those. <laughs> To talk through some of those things. Um, I guess to start at the beginning of all of this, the tweet thread is something from, I don't know why, it's actually from two weeks ago, it's from November 27th, but the guy who tweeted it, his name is Alexander uh, Volodarsky, and he tweeted this thread that said, Eric Barone, who is concerned ape for anybody who like understands... Um, you'll, you'll get this in a second. Eric Barone has made $300 million, yes, that's not a typo, in revenue in six years with zero employees. He developed a game that has sold 20 million copies. To date, at this rate, he can easily become the first one-person founder to do $1 billion in sales. Here's how he did it. In 2011, Concerned Ape made the video game Stardew Valley to improve his chances of getting a job. The premise was simple. You inherit a large farm. You now have to grow crops, raise livestock, build relationships with the villagers, and start a family. Go Going full-time, Eric decided to work solo to retain 100% creative control. He learned everything, adding 3D graphics, animations, music as he built the game. By December 2011, he was so obsessed with the game, he was working 8 to 15 hours a day, that he gave up on finding a job. Building a community, Eric launched a website, 20 million visits per month, and a, and a subreddit, 1.3 million subs, to share updates and take feedback from gamers. Um, he capitalized on the audience to promote his game, educate gamers on how to play Stardew, and answer FAQs. The community also helped him game Steam's a video game distribution platform's approval, seem rejected solo developers, but if fans voted for a game they'd want to play and it got the required votes, Steam approved it. This is the old Steam Greenlight system um, from years ago. They gave up on this uh, in the mid-2010s. Eric leveraged his platform to get the minimum votes. The official launch, Eric... Uh, finally abandoned perfecting every aspect of Stardew Valley and launched it in 2016 for $15. After two months, it sold 1 million copies, generating $15 million. Today, it has sold 20 million copies and made 300 millions in sales. Um, some factors that contributed to its success, cheap price for global adoption. Initially, Eric outsourced P uh, PR, marketing, and publishing to a firm for 10% of the profit share to focus on coding. This is the publisher. Um, the publisher for Stardew Valley was Chucklefish, they terminated their relationship, I think, late last year. Uh, a strong community that promotes his game every day, and of course, the game itself. Um, and then what's next? You know, Eric has got a multi-million dollar offer from Sony, Nintendo, and other giants, uh, but he uh, but he doesn't. He's busy upgrading the game with new features, and he's developing a new game, Haunted Chocolatier. Right. So this is so this is the thread. It has been widely sort of dunked upon in game spaces, right? Like um, Jason Schreier did a, did a retweet of this because in his book, I believe, um, he talks about how Eric was able to do all of this because he was supported by his girlfriend full time for eight years. She was working, she was working two jobs to take care of him, right? And I understand that, and, th and that's a very valid kind of piece of it because I do think that people sort of 
that's a question that deserves to sort of be answered. That's not the thing that bothered me about this, like, thread. The thing that bothered me is the sort of, like, tone that this is something that anyone could do, right? That, like, oh, all, all you have to do is, is make, is just solo develop a game and learn everything, and you too could make $300 million. It's like, well, no, like, Stardew Valley is the most exceptional of exceptional cases, right? It is maybe the most successful indie game of all time. I really, I, ha I would have no, Minecraft. I would have no way. Oh, yeah, Minecraft would probably Minecraft sold out sense. eventually and, like, booted yeah, the founder, yeah, yeah. right? But obviously, like it, yeah, so, obviously, Stardew Valley continues to be in sort of independent, yeah, but Minecraft would probably be a better answer. That's true. Um and it's just like, and and it's, and so that just bothered me. And so I tweeted in response to this. Um, I said, viewing indie game development through the lens of startup hustle culture is just terrible, right? And talking about Stardew Valley, maybe the most successful indie game of all time, as though anyone can do it, is like recommending people play the lottery. This is a cringe take, right? That's what that's what I wrote on on Twitter. And this is this is the start of everything. Uh, so I don't know where do we where do we even go from here? Yeah. So so just so so. Just as, as a, this is going to be very little of it, but I've got some experience in that kind of startup space. Um, and I responded to you. Um, I think maybe it was a little bit too harsh on the guy because I, I don't read as much anybody you can, can do it into it as you do. Um, mm -hmm. And I think maybe part of that's just because, like, this is how startup people speak, right? This is a case study and this very successful founder, you know. And usually, especially on Twitter, usually it's not like an explicit like what lessons can we take from this, but it kind of like leaves it to the extent of the reader as to what's useful about understanding this and what can be leveraged on your own way. Um, and I don't think it's as much you can do it too, but just kind of like like a understanding of it that way. I am kind of interested of the idea of examining indie games from like a startup perspective because like that kind of like you know uh, you know work your ass off for a company, you know, don't sleep for 10 years and eventually hit it big. That's kind of like the classic unicorn startup or even the classic startup experience, right? Even even for companies that are successful but don't necessarily become unicorns and unicorns are like, you know, billion valuation or whatever, right? Like, yep. um, uh, and it's interesting because actually, like the, the thing that's missing from his story is kind of like the VC, but I guess the VC was his girlfriend technically because they assume like she is enjoying the benefits of this game, right? Like, I, I yeah, yeah. Any, if that, that would suck, right? If he's like, I made $300 million, now I'm dumping you, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, oh God, can you imagine? Yeah. Oh, woof. Yeah, right, but, yeah. There, there's a lot of stuff in this thread that also sort of bothers me, but on that, I actually do, oh, like, uh, like agree, right? Um, like, because you said, if this, if this take is cringe, it's only cringe because it's also a cringe startup take, not because the comparison is bad. That's fine, yeah, yeah. I agree, it would be a cringe sort of startup take as well um because like i you know i don't know i i'm not super into like startup stuff so i don't even know what that market is about the the one of the problems about this that bothered me like another another guy tweeted in response he said do you do you think things like stardew dwarf fortress or ftl even are just chance or did they bring something special to the market that wasn't there right um and I definitely think that they they did bring something special to the market, right? But the thing about indie games is that you know, like the compare to me, a comp the comparison point, like the median su successful indie game doesn't look anything like Stardew Valley, 
right? Because the whole point of indie games is you don't need to get a grand slam in order to be successful. You just need a little, you just need a base hit, right? And I said, selling 50,000 copies can be enough. 20, 20 million shouldn't be the standard. That's sort of the, that's sort of my, my core bottom you know, level thing that about, is about, that, that's, this is super interesting because there's also kind of that attitude otherwhere in like the startup space, right? It's like you don't need to be a unicorn. You can like, you know, the average founder is like between 30 and 40 or whatever, or like upwards of 40 mm. even, right? And you just need – you don't need to want to be, you know, a billion-dollar runaway success. You can be a successful mid- to small-sized company and still be – still consider yourself a success, right? Like um, – because I, I, I think people think there's too much emphasis on unicorns in the startup space as well. But that's, that is all kind of beside the point. I think, I think the more interesting thing here, here is for me to talk to you about the life cycle of an average indie game. Dev. And so yeah, to the, sure. you, you don't serve like – you have, like you said during the Dunkey uh, comments during that podcast, you, know, you guys aren't looking to service the Stardew Valley, Valleys. Um, not, I presume, because you wouldn't love the opportunity to – Latch onto their revenue, but just because like that's not realistic, right? You want yeah, like, you you can't frame your company around that. That's a that will that's a failure essentially. Um, to try and create an indie game publisher, this was the thing that I was frustrated about when it came to Dunkey. He was talking about a lot of these these games that we would call runaway successes, like Hades, like Undertale, like Hollow Knight, or whatever. And it's like, first of all, Hades and Hollow Knight didn't even have a publisher. You know, like they were so successful kind of from the ground up that they didn't even need a publisher. Um, and that's Team Cherry and uh, Supergiant, right? Like Supergiant obviously went insane off of Bastion in the first place. So what need do they have for a publisher now? Because they can just kind of hire anybody that they would, they would, anybody they would possibly need in order to kind of cover that. Same thing with Hollow Knight, which has also sold millions of copies, right? Like three, three million, five million copies, something like that, right? Like these guys just have so much money that it, that is a met, that it doesn't matter. Um, and so that's how, and, and so that was my thing that like with, with Dunkey specifically, right? Is like looking at walking into the indie game space, but all of the indie games you're talking about and thinking about are the huge successes that everyone knows the names of. It's like, that's just not going to happen, right? Like, Akupara has been a successful indie game publisher for six years, right? And I just, and most people don't know any of our any of our games. Most of our games are really, pro like, are profitable. They make us money, they make the developers money, right? Supports the whole business. Um, and my camera just froze. Um, and uh, we didn't need to do... We didn't need to do Stardew Valley numbers to do that. Like, we, the, the, the... Any, any of our publisher friends don't need to do Stardew Valley numbers in order to do that, right? Like, other indie indie publishers in the spaces, um, Whitethorn, Digirati, right? Like, spots like that. That's just, it's it, it completely fails to understand the actuality of what it's like hanging out in the indie dev marketing world um, to sort of talk about it in those kinds of terms. Yeah, no, that makes, that, that makes, that definitely makes sense. Are you back? Uh... Um, He's still frozen uh, on my screen. Oh, now you're black. Mm, now you're black screen. Yeah, I am now trying to. Well, now it is just a black screen. You say? You know what? Hold on. Uh, Lou says it's like a podcast with a buddy cardboard cutout. That uh, that's that's actually about right now. Now we've got the OBS logo. <laughs> True. Um. All right. Can I ask you a question, or can can you juggle? Repair your camera while answering a question. Yes, feel free to ask. Uh, feel free to ask me questions while I try and fix this. Okay, so 
can you, and maybe this is a little broad, but can you kind of like walk through the broad strokes? Like, let's say I'm an indie game dev and I've got like, uh, I've got a game I want to pitch to you. Um, at like what point are devs pitching to you? And at like, 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 you know, like what point in the development process? Oh, yeah, process? sure. Yeah, so this actually this is this is the, like the part of the thing that nobody that nobody sees, but like I wish more people did because they think it's actually really interesting. So, um, the the part of the process where we get involved is people come to us with generally speaking a vertical slice or a demo right of their game. They come with a pitch deck and they do sort of lay it out. Of, and I would imagine it would actually be pretty similar to a startup pitching VCs, right? Um, where, you know, they, they, they send us the title. Um, they show us what they're doing, right? We play a little bit of the vertical slice. We evaluate whether or not we think that that's good. And then maybe we'll sign it or not sign it as necessary. A lot of the time, this include this includes money changing hands, right? Like this is the classic relationship between a developer and a publisher, right? A publisher is the bank. The developer is sort of the talent. The developer wants to make the game and they need money from the developer in order to make that happen, right? Uh, so like uh, an easy sort of frame for something like this would be the old Rare games for the Nintendo 64, right? Um, Rare is a company, I think they're in like in England, right? Rare is a company in England. Nintendo wants to make a Donkey Kong game um, or they want to make, uh, you know, whatever else. They... Uh, they get, they basically pay the money. They, they pay rare, however much money, a million dollars, right? And rare takes that million dollars, uses it to fund the project. Anything left over is essentially profit, right? That's like the very classic developer publisher relationship. And that works in indie games, right? People will, will pitch us. They'll say, Hey, I need a hundred thousand dollars. I need a quarter of a million dollars. I need a million dollars, whatever the, whatever the number is to finish development of our game. And then later down the line, what the publisher does is they get revenue share, right? So every, um, you know, every dollar that comes in, uh, 30 cents of it might come to us, 20 cents of it, whatever the number is, right? Um, 50 70 cents of it depending on what the what the nature of the contract is will come to the publisher and some of it will also go to the developer right that's the very kind of classic bare bones relationship that that a developer has with um with a publisher and this is the thing that it's easy to talk about something like Stardew Valley or, you know, Hollow Knight or whatever else in sort of hindsight because, like, those games are so kind of gigantic and huge. Um, but at the and whenever you're doing this evaluation process, you need to sort of figure out whether or not that is going to you know, like that's going to work. Like, is this a title that you think is going to sell and how well do you think it's going to sell? Right. Um, it's always something that has to be, that has to be evaluated as a, as a piece of kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess as a piece of the puzzle, man, I really cannot figure out how to get my, my camera to work. This sucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, have you tried unplugging it, plugging it back in again? You know, that's actually a pretty good idea. Um, <laughs> classic, classic, uh, IT solution. Um, uh, but yeah, so uh, on to the the point at hand. Um, so that that seems like a pretty neat overview. And by the way, for the people at home, if Buddy's talking about his experience as somebody at Aquapara, if I ever ask a question that crosses the line, he's free to shut me down. So you know, if if that happens, oh my god, it's we fixed it. Hell yeah. Okay. Yes. 
it's yeah. So, um, uh, and so for for the money that you are taking, so you're you're providing, um, you're essentially giving them upfront capital. Are you are you also doing like I've heard of other publishers doing kind of like advertising? I know that yeah, you okay. guys also so, do like like platform compliance. There's different as well, there's right? different kinds of there's different kinds of publishers, right? Um, the, the in a broad sense. I like to break down publishers into two categories, right? You sort of have manpower publishers, which is sort of what Akupara is, and you sort of have bank publishers, right? Which would be something like, honestly, sort of Microsoft like Microsoft. Game Studios. Yeah, exactly. Um, Riot Forge would also be a pretty good example of this. So, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe Riot, Riot Forge is actually a little bit in the middle. Um, so, basically, let's say I'm a developer and when I'm working through my game, the core thing that I'm that I'm interested in is picking up a lot of expertise that is not present in my studio. I'm trying to keep costs low. This is this is the reason, by the way, when I say base hits, this is the reason why base hits work. The reason why 50,000 copies makes a successful game is because your overhead is so low. When you're an indie game developer, most of the time it's just, you know, like Cardboard Kings is a good example of this. That's two guys, right? It's two guys in Australia, just the two of them, right? That, it does not cost a ton for the two of them to sort of live their lives and, and work on their games compared to, for instance, um, much bigger titles, right? World of Warcraft is going to have a 500 person, you know, whatever development team. There's a lot of overhead associated with that. That game has to sell well in order to justify that, that sort of overhead cost. If wow did not sell 10 million copies on an expansion launch, we would all say, uh Oh, that's a huge problem, right? If wow sold 50,000 copies, right? Like, so their blizzard would be in trouble basically um so anyway you just have you have a small team and that team doesn't have a lot of expertise right you know um contrary to sort of the the eric barone you know uh concerned ape story a lot of the time it is it's pretty normal for people to have like a programmer right a designer um sometimes the designer is other things right sometimes the designer is also an artist um you know or you might have vfx you might hire a composer right like all these other kinds of things that are related to the game itself and there are and there are but there are aspects to launching a game that they don't necessarily have the expertise for community management marketing you know like all of all porting right all of the things that were mentioned in that thread that you know sort of the publisher brought to the fore those are things which is it's like i just can't be this renaissance man who does everything right no nobody really is like that um in in sort of like the game development space that if that's the case you go to a manpower sort of studio like ours our thing is not money we don't have a lot of money when it comes to like you know signing huge gigantic projects right like you know um devolver is maybe probably the best example of this insofar as i would even say that they're not even really all that indie anymore right but you can imagine the guys who needed money for fall guys right going to Devolver and Devolver shelling out millions of dollars for that, that's a pretty huge ask. There's a lot of money that, that changed hands for the development of Fall Guys, which a lot, of, which I think a lot of people would classify kind of instinctively as an indie, uh, and like intuitively as an indie game, even if that, you know, that development team was like 50 people, right? Um, you, don't, you don't go to Akupara Games if that's the kind of game that, that you're looking for. You go to Akupara if you have a really successful Kickstarter, right, 
you know, for instance, you ha you are walking into the table with most of your funding taken care of, but like you just want you want to make one sort of decision that accounts for all of this extra stuff related to launching a game, right? Um, related to porting, related to marketing, right? Related to expertise, somebody to cut the trailers, right? Um, you know, somebody to to write the patch notes, essentially, right? Um, if you are a game that needs a lot of money. Um, you might go to a place like, uh, you know, you might go to a place like Microsoft, right? Um, where they're just kind of a bank. Actually, the best example of this is an old is an old publisher that we used to. Uh, they're, they're they're now defunct, um, but basically they didn't do anything but 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 put cash in developers' pockets. They provided really small amounts of support. Right, maybe you would get like a couple of like tweets from like partners or whatever, or they would have a little bit of muscle on the back end in terms of like making deals for you. That's something else that a publisher can do is they can sort of make deals on your behalf in order to, to secure funding, right? That kind of thing. Um, but their their pitch was almost entirely just, we have a bank. If you you know if you need money, come to us, basically, right? Um, that actually sounds like just to bring it back to start everything. That sounds like the kind of classic VC relationship, yeah. right? Venture capitalist, right? Like you know, they're mostly providing money, maybe some advisement, and maybe down the line they may they might put their fingers in. But most of it's just kind of like money and connections, right? Like I can get you in the room with a guy, if if that helps, right? That type of thing. Um, does that sound about accurate for these money yep. uh, publishers? Yep, that is basically exactly what you know I would expect um, from these money publishers. And neither of those are good or bad, by the way, right? Like, obviously, I work at Akupara. It is important for us to sort of be this like partner that is adding a lot to the relationship, right? One of the things we talk about is value add, right? Does if like if a studio comes to us to like a development studio comes to us to publish their title are we bringing real value to their to that product right are we giving feedback that makes it better are we helping them you know kind of understand the landscape better right um are we sort of shaping the the marketing campaign to sell more copies all of that stuff and you know we would obviously make the case in basically every scenario that we are a value add to the you know for the for the games that we do publish right um but a a bank doesn't you know like one of these maybe I would call them a VC right like one of these VC sort of publishers wouldn't necessarily need to do that right at the end of the day their whole point is to write you a check right um, I say, they are, they are adding value but they're very directly adding value in the form of dollars instead yes of exactly services. and like it would and I would say that the dollars is still there in Aquapar it's just there in terms of yep. man hours right because you're kind of it's a package deal a little bit instead of spending you know to, to put it this way instead of spending money like you know like the the fifty thousand the hundred thousand the five hundred thousand dollars you would get out of whatever you know sort of this VC publisher has to offer and then hiring a PR agency, right? Um, or like an influencer relations person or any of these other sorts of things. Um, you are instead sort of doing doing that with a publisher like us by saying, okay, well, all of the hours that, you know, whatever, Buddy ends up working for this, this game, this title, those are sort of paid down as part of, right? Like I'm paid by Akupara, obviously. Those man hours have a monetary value, even if, you know, like there isn't cash changing hand between the developer and me. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me at least. Yeah. Um, hmm. All right. So, uh, 
given given that like um i guess maybe an, an interesting thing to ask you would be like what are kind of your day-to-day duties and like how does that service the client how does it service aquapara in general like do you do, you do anything that's like for Akupara, for Akupara's sake. Oh yeah, I do a lot um, for Akupara, for Akupara's sake, right? In the sense that I'm, you know, I'm the marketing lead. I'm sort of running the marketing team um, on like a like on a creative level. I am the person who is responsible for, you know. So for instance, just today we dropped a. Um, a video for Rain World, uh, which is the expedition mode. Uh, teaser trailer, right? Um, Expedition mode is a feature that's coming to Rain World Downpour. It is the third of our sort of like big mod reveals, right? The first one was more Slugcats. You know, okay, so to back up, the, the, the story of Rain World Downpour is um, we picked up the publishing rights to Rain World. We wanted to make... This is a big community. A lot of people in it who are really interested in the game and wanted like want more content out of the game. So what we basically did was we found the most popular modders in the scene, making making interesting mods, and we brought them into the development of the game, right? Um, and so the first one of those was called More Slugcats, which just adds more playable characters to the you know like to the world of Rain World, plus a lot more um, sort of area and like territory to, to cover, like different enemies, that kind of a thing. Um, the second one was Jolly Co-op, uh, which just adds a like the co-op functionality into rain world so that if you want to play with multiple players you can um and the third one is expedition mode which is sort of like adding a roguelike experience a little i guess is maybe the easiest way to frame that um to to rain world right for each of those moments we made a trailer right for for like the game i am the person who is creatively in control of that trailer and responsible for that trailer. And I do all the work with the video editors, you know, capturing the footage, editing the thing. I was the one who wrote, you know, like I wrote the, the brief, which is sort of like a, like a, like a script, I guess. Um, you know, we did, we did a bunch of feedback rounds. I was the one giving notes on the video. Then the video eventually kind of like gets set live. All of that stuff happened on the publisher end of the sort of arrangement rather than the developer end of the arrangement. Though I will say, obviously, the developer always has a stake in this stuff and they get to see all of it, right? It's not like I'm putting up a trailer against their wishes. Obviously, as we're making our way through the, the, the trailer creation process, I'm going to be showing cuts to the developer and saying, hey, do you like this? Do you not like this? Or whatever. And they'll, and they'll be giving their own notes as well does that make sense it, it does um, yeah. i want to put a pin right there because i want to come back to rain world in particular okay but just kind of my original question was akapara for akapara's sake and that sounds like akapara for rain world's sake which makes sense right like that's oh, like- i'm sorry yes yeah, so the akapara for akapara's sake stuff is just like the normal stuff about working at a company right um which is to say like um you know like any like, of our- do, do you actively pitch to developers like do you see a developer you would like to acquire or, or, or like basically all the developers coming coming to you Mostly developers are coming to us. But th- this is another thing. There are so many people who are trying to work, do stuff in indies, right? Um, that uh, we're sort of flooded, to be honest, with with people who are asking us. I would be interested to know the actual number. I would expect that over the course of a year, we get hundreds, maybe more than a thousand pitches. We get so many pitches from people. Um for publishing and we'll only end up right you know like we'll only end up taking a couple right like if you think of our 2021 right the, like the games that we released in 2021 were gone viral grime uh behind the frame and the dark side detective i think is all the like gone viral grime 
Find the frame. Dark Side Detective. Yeah, that's four games. Um, maybe there was a fifth one that I'm like not thinking about or whatever. Um, you know, in 2022, uh, it, Absolute Tactics. Uh, or was that, that this year? That's year. Yeah. So this year would have been Absolute Tactics, right? Would have been Cardboard Kings. Um, you know, uh, it would have been a bunch of stuff that is like long tail stuff, so DLC. So obviously, Grime Colors of Rot is coming out this this week, right? Which is the new the new content for Grime, which released last year. Uh, Cardboard Kings Card Game Island released last week, right? Um, which is new content for Cardboard Kings that released this year, right? Um, you know, the bonus cases for the Dark Side Detective, all of those are um, sort of like DLC. Like those all kind of come out. Um, so we only pick up a couple of projects like per year, but we are just co we're constantly seeing uh, submissions, right? Um, you know, over the course of a year, I'm probably reviewing anywhere from like 20 to 30 different games that I think are interesting or compelling uh, for you know like for publishing and being able to sort of like give my my two cents on whether or not I think though like this is a game that is that is worth us investing our time and efforts into. Okay, so. Um, just to kind of like, I think this will tie nicely back into the ring and stuff. You described it as you guys acquired the rights to publish that. Can you talk about like what that was like? Like, did like obviously Rainbow was now uh, like a, a outstanding. I don't necessarily mean in quality, although I'm sure it is. I just mean like it, it is an existent property. Yeah. Right. Like, um, yeah. Were so those just like was this, like, their old publisher not looking for it? Were they looking for like somebody to? sell a stake of their company to get some assistance with something. I don't know the full story. Uh, their old publisher was Adult Swim Games. Um, okay. You know, so uh, Adult Swim published a bunch of different stuff over. But, you know, they kind of shut down their publishing division, you know, whatever was happening in Adult Swim. Um, and so uh, we had already had, we had always had a good relationship with Video Cult, who is the developer of Rain World. We actually ported Rain World to the Switch is the other thing, right? You know, like, Akupara is doing a lot of porting work as, as part of this, right? The, the grime stuff that is coming out this week is ports uh, to the to the game for PlayStation and Xbox. Um, and so uh, that so we had already had a pretty good relationship with them and we you know we did I do think we pitched them on this idea of like, hey, why don't we pick up your publishing rights? And make some new content for Rain World. That's called Rain World Downpour. It's releasing next year. That you know, like all all of this this other sort of stuff. We do make pitches to developers along those sorts of lines. Um, and a lot of the time, that's kind of like in the negotiation phase, right? When we think that there is a project that is good and interesting um, that that we're excited for and that we want to work on, we might make certain you know, like um, you know, we might want to make certain kind of. There, there's always there's always like back and forth to that deal for what it looks like, right? Like sometimes the answer is um, we're, we'll do we'll do like QA and video editing and whatever. Sometimes the answer is they'll do that stuff, right? Um, so on other projects from a long time ago, we didn't QA those projects. They had internal QA on their team and they did their own QA and that was fine, right? Uh, but there are other projects where it's just like, oh, well, we have a QA team of a couple of people and we will QA your projects for you to make sure that we're like launching in like a strong state or whatever else, right? Um, Anyway, and the process of reviewing some of these titles, I think, is something that is is what we would say is like Akupara for Akupara's time, right? When I sit that down with sense. when I sit down with a game, I get and I have this vertical slice, 
and um, and we do things a little bit differently than other studios. This is one of the things that makes Aquapar kind of unique. Um, we give really comprehensive feedback on builds. Most of the time, if I submit a build to a publisher, that publisher might give me a, like, a little bit of feedback, like in an email from one person. What we do is we show that build to multiple people on the team, right? And then ask them to draw up, you know, maybe a page or two of, of kind of comprehensive feedback to, um, to the game. And sometimes we'll go through different rounds of this. Um, so for instance, uh, Cardboard Kings was a project that we got, we showed the, or we were shown the initial demo a long time ago by those developers. It's the same guy who did Desert Child, right? So we had already had a pre-existing relationship with him or whatever. Um, he showed us this demo. I went apeshit for it. I loved Cardboard Kings from the, from the minute, you know, that we ended up playing. And I, like, le levied really hard in order to sign that title and make it kind of like one of our projects, which ended up being a really good idea because Cardboard Kings went on to make us money, you know, like, to be a, a, successful, a successful project, right? Um, but, uh, but, like, there is that opportunity for people inside of the team to really champion things. Uh, and that's happened on a couple of different occasions, right, where, you know... Um, uh, Sorry, we're closed. For instance, uh, one of the one of the news titles. I didn't touch that when we were doing the reviews for it, but another member of the team did, and they were like, "This is special. Sign. We should sign this game. Like, I want to sign this game really hard." Basically, does it make sense? It does. It yeah. does. Um, again, I'm I'm starting to go back to my rule, but it's just kind of like a very interesting test case. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you described yourselves as having, um, you know. Like you, you guys were, were kind of the 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 force that brought in kind of this modding scene people to kind of bring their stuff into the base game. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, so the the question then is is like, what was preventing um, Rain World's devs from doing that? All like in the first place, right? Like, why why did what why did you guys need to come in and, and, and enable, or what did you guys do to enable that rather than? Um, them doing it on, on their own. I don't just like a... super know the answer to that question because uh, okay. I was not very close to you know like those negotiations, um, and I also don't have a super sense for what happened with you know like Adult Swim, um, and obviously okay. you know like like the, the, the my expectation would be, I guess that Adult Swim, you know they didn't they didn't necessarily want to do anything else, and that's kind of fine right it is much easier to do this stuff when you have publisher support than it is when you don't i guess is what i would say um we like this stuff uh it's called long tail stuff right which is sure. to say that um you know so for instance for grime we sort of always knew there was going to be sort of dlc in the work for, works for grime and i have never in my life signed with a signed with a, uh, a developer like where we've signed with a developer where they don't have some post-launch DLC sort of plan, right? Um, some, like, extra content plan. Everyone includes it in their pitch. I actually sort of think it's incorrect. If, you know, if I'm giving advice to developers, I don't want to see that. I don't care about that. I think that's sort of dumb. Um, because... It really just depends on whether or not the game is a success, right? Like, if the game is good and it sells a lot and people want more, it is easy to say, yes, let's spend time on DLC. Let's let's go hard for DLC. Um, if the game just kind of is middling, right, it breaks even, right, or it doesn't, you know, like, you, you know, it's, it's sort of like... It's 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 a wishful thinking sort of thing that that doesn't help in pitches um, is I guess what I is like what I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. But everybody walks to the everybody comes to the table by saying this is what the base game will have, and I have thoughts about DLC, and I want to and I want to do that stuff. Um, there are some publishers who don't 
care and don't want that because most of a game sales are going to happen immediately, right? Most of a, a game right. sales are going to, you know, like one of the things that we're doing is we're writing algorithmic waves, right? Um, so for instance, uh, a lot of my job is w thinking about and, w and trying to maximize the coming soon list, right? Uh, so whether that's on the Switch or whether it's on Steam or whatever, right? Like, you know, um, new and upcoming, those are places that make sales algorithmically because people just go and they go, oh, hey, what's new? What can I look at? And they see your game and they click on it and they buy it or they wishlist it or, what, or whatever else, right? Um, and we try and ride that for as long as we possibly can, right? Um, so maybe a good example of this would be... Um, Actually, Cardboard Kings is a pretty good example of this. We released Cardboard Kings in such a spot that it basically rode popular upcoming for about a week, right? Where, you know, it came out and was not at the top of popular upcoming. It's almost always going to be some AAA game of some variety, right? If I, you know, like, if I were to go to Steam right now, I'm sure I could find uh, exactly what, you know, the, the top of, of popular upcoming is uh, is high on life. I don't even know what this is. Oh, this is the, oh, Rick, the Rick and Morty, and Morty game. game. Yeah, this is the Rick and Morty game. Um, and it's like most of the time, popular and upcoming is going to kind of be like whatever sort of like the big, you know, like AAA release is going to be, right? Like it's going to be Call of Duty for like a fucking month or something like that, right? Um, but getting a week, that's actually pretty good. For us to get a week, you know, um, to, to be on there as, as you're walking up into release, you know, getting a certain amount of wish lists or whatever. Uh, and then... Um, you know, the game, the game comes out and you want to sort of be fueling that sitting, sitting in that popular upcoming list for, for a couple of days in order to just kind of make sales based on nothing really else besides the algorithm. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And just to, just to be very complete, um, High Life is not a Rick and Morty game specifically. It is a game by Squanch Games where Justin Roiland does a bunch of the voices. So it's not a Rick and Morty like a branded game. It's just like very associated with Rick and Morty, right? Yep, like, that's true. That is correct. Um, uh, but so just just to kind of like to to, to close the, the the loop on on this kind of DLC. So like obviously I'm 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 kind of not getting something. And I'm I'm hoping me asking this question will, will illuminate it for other people as well. Like, what do you as what kind of things do you as a publisher do that enables this kind of DLC to be done that wouldn't otherwise happen? Right? Like like. Presumably, let's like we're in a world where like, um, you know, let's say again. I mean, I'm just gonna use Rainbow because it's the one that's closest to hand, right? Sure. Like, let's say Adult Swim ceases to exist to publish the rights revert back to Rain World. Why would they go to or not to to the devs of Rain World? Why would they go to you to help launch the DLC versus just kind of doing it themselves? It's just that kind of marketing stuff that you. Got, it, and I, when I say just, I don't mean I don't mean yeah. it to minimize it. Just kind of oh, like you know, they're they're a development studio. And they have other projects to work on, right? Um, okay. You know, they they've been working on another game uh, for a long time. I'm sure they they have their own sort of thoughts about how that's going to get published, about how that's going to get announced, right? You know, so for instance, the um, the developers of the Dark Side Detective, right? Uh, we did. We published the Darkside Detective 1 and 2. Well, Darkside Detective 1 was self-published. We picked up the publishing rights after it was out. And then we published Darkside Detective 2 and all of its DLC, right? Uh, they have a new game that's coming out called um, Eldritch House. And, the, and our friends at Raw Fury, Fury, who is another indie publisher, they picked up you know, they picked up Eldritch House. And it's like, the, you know, they want Darkseid Detective to be successful, but that project is over. They're, they're working okay. mostly on Eldritch House now, right? Like, you know, um, 
And so maybe that means, not that this is necessarily the case, um, but like maybe that means that we pick up some of the DLC development work, right? Um, or something okay. kind of along those lines. Does that make sense? Like we it, are it sort does. of, yeah, like picking up, uh, putting some work into how this stuff happens, right? Like for, for us specifically, it was literally hiring these modders. It was finding, you know, some of, some of these mods and saying, hey, you developer of the modder, whatever you're, you know, would you like to work on this game and the you know that modder his name was andrew fm um who is like the lead you know the lead developer on uh this this mod called more slug cats we just we just hired him right um but that's that is a little bit of a unique case right like that is a case where akupara is co-developing essentially the dlc with video cult um who are the original developers of the game and the and the, and the work that they're putting into it we're we're, we're, we're both working on uh working on downpour together okay so so that, so that's i think the the insight there that i that i had missed and i maybe should have gotten this because i've talked to you enough about this but like it's you are you are i so in my mind it was always kind of like a bigger wall between like the actual development and like the publisher stuff like you have like access to their source code presumably oh, yeah. and you can like like build against their stuff i guess you would have to in order to do the porting stuff yeah i mean porting um, is most of the like most of the part where where that kind of stuff comes in obviously um but you know for for other stuff it'll it'll happen in you know um so for instance um something uh i'm trying to think of a good example of this maybe there isn't a good example of this really at the end of the day yes we do have access to that stuff we also like own like you know we we kind of control the steam pages right um so for instance have you followed any of the um any of this stuff around the outbound ghost have you seen any of this drama? No. Okay. I I want to tread a little lightly because this is drama in sort of the indie game space that is elucid that, that will elucidate some of these things, um, but is close to home. Yeah, and I don't know and I don't want to speak too much on it. I I don't know the specifics of that relationship. I don't, I'm not I'm not saying one side is correct or the other or anything like that. This is not me being a drama YouTuber react video where I'm saying, "Ooh, this person's right, this person's right." But it is actually pretty instrumental to sort of what's been going on. So the so a couple of weeks ago, the Outbound Ghost um is like it's a game that comes out it's on steam very successful right not very successful just a, a successful normal like indie game you probably haven't heard it but that doesn't mean it's not a success is what i mean to say like i said indie games is about base hits outbound ghost is probably a good solid base hit um there's there's porting involved they're coming to switch they're coming to playstation or whatever um that porting is being handled by their publisher their publisher is digerati right um the Outbound Ghost developer releases a statement on his Twitter. Oh, actually, so what happens is the game comes out on Switch and people are and people are saying the quality of the port is really bad. Um, and so he releases a statement on his Twitter. The Outbound Ghost guy releases a statement on his Twitter that is basically saying, uh, hey... The, you know, the game released on PlayStation 4 and Nintendo Switch. I have seen stuff about its performance. These performance issues really suck. I don't like them. We're working on it, basically. Digerati, who, you know, does the does the porting or whatever, um, is the one who basically said, yes, we're working on it. We're putting in patches to, for Nintendo and for Sony. And, you know, we expect that we're going to better optimize performance on these um, on these things in the not too distant future. Um, 
Then the the developer of the Outbound Ghost gets a little more aggressive and starts talking about how it's the there is a breakdown of communication between himself and the publisher and he really doesn't like it, right? Um, so for instance, the Outbound Ghost came out um, and it got put on sale by the publisher um, and he really didn't like it. So he puts out the statement that says, for everyone's information, the game has been put on sale on Steam as of yesterday. This was just six days after the last sale. This is not my doing. The, the Outbound Ghost current sale is not authorized by me, the developer. I'm doing everything I can to take the appropriate action, right? Whatever, right? He's mad. He's mad about this. Um, and eventually things break down to the point where he literally says, do not buy the Outbound Ghost. And he deletes the Steam page, essentially. Um, and, uh... Because communication is broken down so much between him and, and, and the publisher, Digirati, right? Digirati releases their own statements. They go, you know, we're working on this stuff. We're, we apologize for whatever sort of lapse of inappropriate whatever, uh, like for, for, you know, like performance or whatever. Um, but we're, you know, we're doing our best to, to make the game kind of like better and playable. And to my knowledge, they figured shit out. It's back up on Steam again, like the story page, all this other sort of stuff. This is sort of like a when it goes bad situation, right? When like a developer gets really sort of fed up and angry with their with their publisher, um, he he would end up releasing this whole video about you know like a like a the problem that he was having with Digirati in in particular and the and the decisions they were making kind of without his his input. You could say Digirati is allowed to make these decisions. Like as the publisher, we own the store pages for all of our, you know, like we control those store pages. That is a part of the marketing effort. I'm the one who writes store copy for this stuff. The rain world store copy, you know, that came from me essentially. Right. Um, and it makes, and, and, and presumably part of the reason why you enter a relationship with the publisher is you don't have to do any of that. Yes, exactly. Right. right? And it is a huge pain dealing with this stuff, right? A lot of my time, more of my time than you might think, get it gets spent on things like, well, this one distribution partner, like Nintendo or something, rejected our whatever, like our trailer, because it had 0.5 seconds of showing a PlayStation X button because someone was using a playstation controller to capture footage instead of an xbox you know like w w crazy minor bullshit right developers don't want that so we we take on that and it's our responsibility to deal with that right and because we're doing this for multiple projects simultaneously right rain world downpour is one of the projects that i'm working on but i'm also working on estrella zoetti you know we're working on a grime we're working on cardboard kings we're working on a bunch of different things i'm i'm doing this constantly i have a really good understanding of what it looks like to put a game up on the Nintendo Switch, what it, what it means to put a game up on PlayStation, the ways in which, you know, I have a blog running um, uh, for uh, the, you know, like for the PlayStation Store. I They publish blogs by me because I have a good relationship with these places and I can say, hey, I want to write a blog about Absolute Tactics and they go, that's great. We'll put, we'll put it up on the Sony PlayStation blog, whatever it is, right? Um, all that All that sort of stuff. Um, that's one of the things that, that a publisher really brings to the table, right? I obviously am, I know how to, how to write things. I know how to, I know how to write to players. So getting me to write a blog adds a lot of value to a project that a developer might not necessarily have. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 That, that makes perfect sense to me. 
Um, yeah. Um, so, um, and again, feel free to stop me if you can't talk about this kind of stuff. But typically, do the developers retain the like the IP rights, or do you guys? Uh, it depends. We have some of the IP rights to some of our games, um, but uh, we, you know, like it, it's just kind of a bargaining chip, right? Sometimes people will sell yeah. us uh, the 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 IT rights. Uh, sometimes developers will sort of fold, and they'll and they'll they'll need the money, um, and you know. We will we will buy we will sort of like buy up the IP rights to their to their game to see if we can maybe do something with it. Uh, most of the time, though, I would say generally speaking, they retain it. We we don't care. You know, like that's that's not that's not a big thing that that comes up all that much. Because um, I, I know that like classically with like the big publishing, you know, like in your your AAA space, right? Mm-hmm. Like the publisher retaining the the IP rights is kind of like how you get. Dark Souls following Demon Souls because Sony owns the Demon Souls IP. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That 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 is definitely that is definitely like true and fair. Yeah, it's just, it's not something we think of as insanely interesting or valuable. And I, like a lot of the times, developers are attached to this stuff, right? They want to yeah. have their IP, um, and they don't want to be pigeonholed. Like let's say, so for instance, let's say Cardboard Kings. Obviously, we have a really good relationship with Cardboard Kings, which is why I'm using them as an example a lot. I'm assuming, Oscar and Rob, if you are out there, that you're, you're not going to be mad at me. Um, if they start working on Cardboard Kings 2, right, and they show us the build for Cardboard Kings 2 and we go, this game sucks. I hate this game, which I would never say because I love Cardboard Kings so much. But let's say I did say that, right? Um, they could then take that to another publisher and publish Cardboard Kings 2 with somebody somebody else, somebody who's not us, right? Um, there's also different tiers of publishers, right? Um, we Maybe your first game, you don't have much of an audience and you need somebody who's going to put the time in to sort of build it from scratch, right? Which is something that we, like, we do. Um, a lot of our a lot of our games are kind of like first time outings from people, right? Uh, you know, like Absolute Tactics Jason um, from Absolute Tactics Jason Shields. Had, he never put out a game before, right? So we kind of built the audience a little bit around him um, to make that game like interesting and cool and successful, basically. Um, but you know, when a, when a second game comes out, when a third game comes out maybe they don't need a publisher as much because they have they have more success they have a couple of titles under their belt maybe they have a little bit more money on their end and they want to sort of go to a different publisher that can offer them more or different amounts of money in order to like kind of get there and that's totally fine that's like that's fair enough right uh you know mutazione we published mutazione mutazione is a great game it was you know it's developed by Dikuta Fabrik, uh, you know this this Danish company. We have a great relationship with them and everything like that. Uh, but their next game is coming from Private Division because Private Division is a is a publisher that has this the services for their next game that we don't necessarily offer, and that's that's totally fine. That's fair enough, right? That makes sense. Yeah. Um. um so it's not it's not all that uncommon for like, you know. Uh, if the Dark Side Detective Three comes out and it, it's published by another company, that would not be weird at all. That would be normal, right? All right, this might be very in the weeds, but like, so you mentioned, you know, you guys do like a lot of porting work. Sure. Um, you use think you do stuff that's like you know technical in its own right. Do you have in-house developers? Do you like are you yep. like contracting with somebody else to to do that? Again, tell me as much as you can. Um, no, we, we do have in-house developers. Akupara sort of has what we would call, like, there's the marketing wing, which is a couple of people, right? Who, this is my team, um, uh, I, of whom I am the, the lead, right? 
Uh, but we also have development people who are were in house. Uh, there's there's a development lead who is sort of my counterpart on the development side of things. Um, we have different producers who are sort of on you know producers are weird. Producers are kind of project leads um, and like managers in a way. Um, like PM, like a project manager. Yeah. Like a we, I, for some reason, we call them producers, and there's also. There's I feel a, like that's like a thing from the film industry that just got adopted by games, even though like yeah, well, so it's even weird for the film industry because producers in the film industry are sort of like money people. Anyway, whatever the case may be, um, it, uh, the the game specific version of project managers are producers basically, um, and the, and so we have marketing producers and development producers, right? Um, you know, marketing producers being people who are you know responsible for the their individual project, um, and development producers who are responsible for like the development of their individual project. And those sounds are, like there's between a project manager and a product manager. Oh which, yeah, you know. I have heard that actually. Also, um, is the same thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, and so and porting is interesting, right? Like porting porting is kind of its own challenge in a lot of ways um especially now i don't think people realize the specs to which you know um developing for playstation and xbox are like like how tough that can be sometimes because you know games come out on the place or on the on the pc and most pcs are really powerful at this point but like the nintendo switch is a six-year-old product right um with like like four gigabytes of RAM, right? Optimizing a game down, most computers have, have much more power than that nowadays, right? Optimizing a game down such such that it's playable on the Switch is is like a real kind of like challenge and skill set, which is why developers want to hire porting houses who specialize in this sort of thing, right? Who know exactly, okay, this is how I'm going to kind of cut, you know, this thing to get better frame rate um, on, on, on the Switch or the Xbox or whatever else. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, I I have run out of kind of very specific things to ask. Um, what do you think? There's a an aspect of um, either your job or the job of Acapara in general that you think most people wouldn't understand or recognize that we haven't gone over already. Yeah, so I think the thing that people don't necessarily get um, is the variety that goes into the market. And what it takes to sort of be an indie game developer. And this is, uh, to kind of go back to that thread, this is also part of what bothers me about that thread. People, I don't think people go to indie games for the money. And I don't think it would be smart to. I think if you are a game developer and you are interested in money, you go work for Activision. You know what I mean? Go work for EA. I mean, the answer is you don't go into games. You go into like yeah, the, normal, exactly. Consumer software, right? Like also I can tell you being that person, right? Like yeah, no. So first of all, yeah, that is absolutely true. But let's say you want to split the difference, right? You want to be in games, but you also want to make like a paycheck. You're there's indie games is the worst place for that. The reason that you make indie games is because of the control, right? Is because of creative control. One of the things that makes me love indies is the creativity on display because you don't have to go okay so to put this in perspective when i talk like part of the thing that i'm talking about when i'm talking about these base hits right you don't need to appeal to everyone right there's a thread um there's a thread going around where somebody says where somebody collects a bunch of influencers that are saying um all games have 
you know, like a, like a farming simulator and a crafting system and, and whatever. And it's like, yeah, those are things that are kind of dictated from on high because they are popular features of popular games and people are trying to increase the sort of market share of their over, you know, like of their titles that are sort of overly represented in, in the marketplace, right? People are interested, you know, Sardu Valley has made it such that farming simulators are an interesting thing that people are, people are down for. And now you have essentially kind of money men in AAA studios who are willing to say, well, why don't you add that feature to your game, right? The point of indie games is you don't have to deal with those guys. You can tell them to fuck off because you don't need to sell a million copies. You need to sell 50,000. And you can sell 50,000 copies to a very niche audience, right, without, without any issue. A, a friend of mine who I'm going to roast a little bit. So, so a friend of mine is a streamer. He was streaming uh, Inscription, right? Um, Inscription is a pretty big game, um, and we were talking about the prevalence of these roguelike, these single-player roguelike deck builders, right? And he said this thing, which was, um, in my opinion, a little misguided, which is why I'm roasting him. He said, I don't even know why anyone would even try and make one of these after Slay the Spire, right? Slay the Spire is so good. It is perfect. You can't improve upon it. Anyone who wants to play your game is just going to go play Slay the Spire instead. And as much as I respect that opinion and understand where he's coming from, that's wrong, right? The reason that people make games, like Astraea, for instance, right? Which is very much like Slay the Spire, right? But with its own sort of different, unique flair. The reason people play Astraea is because they like Slay the Spire and they have mastered Slay the Spire and they like seeing interesting kind of derivations of the formula, right? Oh, what if Slay the Spire but with dice is sort of what Astraea is like, right? Um, or, you know, like what if um, uh, Slay the Spire but with hands of poker, right? Which is what Zoetti is like. These are two games that we have coming up that are both sort of these were like roguelike deck builders. The, I'm not, we're not trying, I'm not, I, I love Estrella. I fought really hard for Estrella. I think Estrella is a really quality title and I, I have put more, more hours into Estrella than anything else. I've talked about how I, when, when the game comes out, I want to do an episode just on Estrella because I love it so much and I want to, and I want to talk a lot about it. I don't think Estrella is going to beat Slay the Spire numbers. Slay the Spire is one of these insane outliers, right? Slay the, Slay, Slay the Spire is like the, like a Marvel movie or whatever, right? You don't need to do that in order to, like, you don't need to do those numbers in order to be successful. If Estrella sells, it's whatever the number of copies it needs to make, to break even, right? Then, then I'm happy and that's fine. And that's the thing that I think people don't understand about, about indie game development, um, is that it's, it's there for the kind of creative passion. Leo, the developer behind Estrella, is a really smart and interesting guy, and he has a lot of really interesting ideas about game design and he and he wanted to sort of explore this design space in a really unique way and he's done a really fantastic job about that right there are so many mechanics in that game that i think are really inspired because he has this insight into what that sort of looks like but in a world in which Australia is trying to do Stardew Valley numbers and you need to add a crafting system and all this other sort of stuff. It's like, no, like this is the stuff that will ruin that title. You want a pure sort of unadulterated sort of thing, right? Which is why I, like it bothers me that this guy tweets this, this sort of startup culture thread because I don't know, do, do people have the same reverence for their product in, in Stardew in, or in startup circles, right? 
like I I don't want to say it's just about the money, but I feel like if you say, oh, I have a niche idea for an app and I think it's going to be successful, I don't actually think people care as much about the app itself as a game developer cares about their game. Because one of those is sort of a creative effort that an artist is working on, I would say. The other is it, sort of like a functional thing. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it depends. Like, there are some people, like... And this is kind of this is also kind of like the thing you're talking about where like, you know, I think kind of like the, you know, for lack of a better term, the mainstream startup culture is like figure out a company that can make a billion dollars, right? Sell it to Google or whatever, right? right. Like um, you know, disclosure I work for Google, not that they would necessarily be the ones uh, <laughs> uh funding it, but like, you know, you sell sell it to some large company for some large amount of money, um, be happy that you've got fuck you money. Yeah. Right. But there are a lot of a lot of startups that are like not quite gunning for that, whose thing is like, you know, um, I watched this series on YouTube called Freethink, and or it's a channel on YouTube called Freethink, and they've got projects that are like, oh, we're really passionate about the environment. So we're doing X, Y, thing. you know, we're doing like, you know, desert planters, right, that we can make out of old storage containers or something like that. Oh, sure. Right? We're, we are building um, a prototype for a plane that we're hoping that, Instead of doing the whole airport thing, we have like micro municipal airports that you step on and you use that as like a short commute. Um, and we're hoping that like, you know, eventually that we get the electric motors small enough that they run just on electricity and they're very short range. And so this is an alternative to commuting that's like more efficient. And they care a lot about that, right? Like, um, and so there's a passion there, but they're also not the ones that are like, you know, they're not the ones that are like, you know, making big money on stonks, right? Like, they're right. not the ones that, are like, you know, investors are interested in, which are the ones that kind of, like, hit the kind of mainstream appeal, right? Like, U Uber is, like, you know, I don't think Travis Klapnik, I think that's his name, whatever his name was, you know, I think he thought he had a really good idea. I don't know how much he was, like, you know, dedicated to improving the transportation yeah, paradigm exactly. and, and that, in and New York City, And that's what I think people right? make fun of, right? Like, in Silicon Valley, you know, which is about sort of startup culture, there's this running joke where all of these people constantly are saying, we want to make the world a better place. And it's like, that's the, the joke in the show is that that's really hollow. People just want to fucking make money. They don't care about they don't care about any of this shit, right? Um, and or and it's like you know like with Theranos, right? Like there's that Theranos documentary which starts with right. you know um, what's her name Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, Elizabeth um, Holmes. Yeah. Elizabeth, where Elizabeth Holmes tells this sad story about like her uncle who like was a diabetic and he died in six months because of like blood something and she's like I wanted to miniaturize blood testing or whatever and obviously that was a huge fraud like the story of Theranos is that she didn't in fact do that she just, just kind of lied a lot um but it's like you have to include those you have to include those sort of those those stories I don't know how much that that kind of like translates to like the love of the product in the same way that like man indie game developers they love their games and they care so much about them in the same way that someone who makes a movie, right? Like really care. Like it is that this creative expression that they, that they invest a lot in. Right. And then even I invest a lot in, right. Um, like I obviously didn't develop, like I'm not on the development team for Australia, but I've given a lot of feedback to that game to, you know, like to, um, sort of talk about things that are fun, things that, uh, things that I think could, could change or whatever else, right? Like, and that's something that's like easy to kind of like get invested into, right? And care and care a lot about. Same thing is true for Cardboard Kings, right? Cardboard Kings is selling an experience that is incredibly niche. I don't know how many people think about 
trading card games, like going to the local trading card game to buy singles, right? That is an experience I had because I played a lot of Magic the Gathering and I did do that, right? Um, and you, like Activision can't make that game. That it wouldn't sell enough money, but an indie developer can because they they can kind of target it to the me in other people, and that's fun and interesting. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I, I think I think about how you talk about the way you like play the market in World of Warcraft. You're like, I don't get out of bed for under four hundred k. That's kind of like the Activision, right? Like you know, they could you know True. publish <laughs> cardboard kings, right? But yeah. it's not worth their time, right? Like you yep. know, it's like barely a blip in their bottom line. Yeah. Um, and and I do think that people do care about this stuff in those companies. Obviously, oh, um, yeah. one of the things that that was interesting. Um, is, uh, you know, thinking about Square Enix and thinking about the way that they've published, you know, some traditionally sort of indie games. Life is Strange, right, would be a good example of this, um, you know, which people people care a lot about and, and is a really interesting sort of uh, thing for them, um, as well as um, even something like Power Washer Simulator, right? Like, that was published by Square Enix, right? Um, and I'm sure that there are people at Square Enix who care a lot about that, that product, um, and they went and they went kind of hard in order to to get it uh, over the finish line. So uh, one thing I will say before before we get up, sure. we leave this this segment is I, I do want to defend startup culture just a, or the startup scene just a little bit. Okay, because I think I think you don't I think you don't get most places without somebody who actually cares about the product, mm -hmm. right? Who's like a product evangelist, and maybe they get shuffled out of the company, right? Like you know. At the risk of, like, poking uh, current events bear, right? I think Jack Dorsey really cared about Twitter. He kind of got, like, the, the oh. stories were that he, he got, like, kind of pushed out of his leadership role pretty early by the board because he sold – like, he did not maintain, like – like famously, Tim Sweeney owns over 50% of Epic Games, right? Yeah. So no one can tell Tim Sweeney what to fucking do. He can be like, fuck you, I own – you know, fifty percent, fifty percent plus one, um, you know, plus one vote of the shares, right? Like, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and so I think somebody has to actually care, care there. And then, like you know, I think there's like part of it is like there are people who do only care about the money, and there are also people. It's also like a, it is a corruption that can happen, right? Like you know, I know this is kind of cheesy, but you think about the this is like the the part in the movie where like you know, you know the the estranged, you know. Pure founders like remember what it was about helping kids and not about the money or whatever. Yeah, right? like yeah, that kind of moment. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, the the uh, I, I I hesitate to call it a benefit, but the benefit of that in indie games is like you're to your point, you're not going to make that much money. There's the, like there's not the opportunity to be corrupted in that way so much. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think uh, a lot of people care about you know like these sources. Like one of the yeah. things that we do a lot is find extra sources of funding for for developers, right? Um, so they might sign with us, and then we'll we'll kind of pitch on their behalf to invest to, to different sort of investors, right? Um, so maybe Microsoft will will put up fifty grand or something like that. They go, hey, this is this is like a neat product. Um, uh, we you know like we want to put it on you know we want to put it on the Xbox, and they'll kind of pay towards that if that makes sense. That's a that's like a very common thing that sort of that sort of happens. Um, in in like the indie game space i think that stuff happens because people care i actually bet i bet you if i'm microsoft and i'm looking at the bottom line of that little piece of their company right that you know this tiny tiny team within a team who goes out and and puts out fifty dot fifty thousand dollar injections into development 
studios in order to, to kind of you know sort of nominally to fund their porting to xbox but also sort of to just say hey this is a, a, like a game that we think is good that's probably a, like a loss right on the on the t final like balance sheet but i think the people who are res like responsible for those would say this is a program that's worthwhile because it's just like it is a good thing to do that we care about and that makes you know like it builds goodwill. It also yeah. is probably like also I'm sure. Gonna... I'm sure they can justify it to themselves in a business sense. They yeah. can say, "Oh, we want to be Microsoft, and Microsoft cares a lot about the development. You know, like the indie game development scene, and people will see this and they'll respect us more for it, or whatever." Like I'm sure you can make those justifications. But also at the same time, I just I, I bet people at the company care. I just think that yeah. they I think that they fundamentally care, right? Um, and that's something that I don't think players see a lot. Uh, I, maybe I would hesitate to use the term gamers see a lot. I think gamers think pretty negatively of developers uh, a lot of the time. Um, and uh, and I just have never met anybody who's in game development who doesn't really care. <laughs> Which yeah, I, think, I mean, to your point, I, I think that's because if you don't care, you just go make the big bucks somewhere else. You go work for Amazon or Google or, you know, Twitch yeah. or something, right? Twitch I mean, Amazon, e but. even then, I, th I think people overestimate how much how much you can, like, like not care and still keep going, right? Like, it's like, a tough thing to do, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, I won't stand here and say that, like, you know, my, you know, like, you know, the, the sole thing that, like, drives me to work every day is, like, my love for the product. But I like the product. If I didn't, I'd hate myself, right? And you'd have to pay me a lot more money to get me to do it. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, that is that is absolutely true. Okay, we're, like, ten minutes over. Is there anything else we should yeah. talk about on this end? <laughs> uh, I, I think that's a good way to end. I think it's a good way to end this section. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm, I'm sure we can come back to this well if we want to ask more questions. I, yeah. the, the next time Doki tweets about big mode games or whatever, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll get into some fucking rant about it. Actually, to be fair, I also think Doki cares. I just kind of think he's being a dipshit. If that makes yeah, sense, no, no. right? Like, no, like I, I, I would not accuse Donkey yeah. of being insincere, right? Just kind of like, yeah. I mean, what? Maybe, maybe, maybe one of these days, maybe I can actually get, maybe I could get somebody on for this. The, the, Influencers as a market are incredibly interesting, and people really don't understand what kind of goes on behind the scenes there. And I would love to talk about it. Uh, I'm not necessarily the person for that though, so maybe I would try and like find a guest uh, to who could who could sort of like better address that that piece of the puzzle because um, you know. I, I, it's like an iceberg, right? Any any influencer, any even even somebody like Dunky, any influencer, there are there's so much behind the scenes that you don't see, right? Outside of just like their videos or whatever, um, and uh, just scratching the surface of that stuff is like really interesting. That's something I wish players knew knew more about. <laughs> you mean like the kind of the other side of the parasocial coin? Well, yeah, like... yeah, it's like. Um, it's not even just a bad thing, right? Like, I, I mean, Dunkey, I'm, I'm, I'm shitting on Dunkey, obviously, as an example of someone who I don't, th I like, I think he cares a lot, and I think he's really interested um, in this sort of thing, but I don't think that he had the right approach, and he understood the space that he was kind of, like, getting into, obviously. Um, but um, I just think that, it, you, know what, you know what maybe I'd say? The reason that indie games can be successful as base hits is because the market is so much 
bigger than you think it is, right? There are so many games that are coming out that are successes, right? That are making that are making plenty of money. You've never fucking heard of these games ever in your fucking life. And it's because they're they're targeting really niche groups, maybe, right? Like it's like uh it's like an it's like a World War II, it's a super faithful World War II tactics XCOM game or whatever. And they're basically targeting these like insane like tactics people and like World War II history buffs that know all of the super details, and they're gonna go absolutely ape shit over like the technical competency of the way that the, this game like models that stuff or whatever. Like that stuff is incredibly common, but you don't see it because you're not part of these super niche subcultures, right? And I think the same thing is actually kind of true for influencers. There are so many more influencers than people think there are, right? Like, we think of the big names, you know, like Dunky, PewDiePie, or whatever. Um, but there are a lot of people who make a full, who make a living doing doing that work, doing that job. Uh, and they have get a couple hundred, you know, Twitch, Twitch viewers on whatever, whatever their channel is up to and doing. And they're just sort of living their life, and, and that's that. And it's just like, there are just so many more of these people than than you could possibly imagine, right? Um, and I think players lose out on that because they don't have a good sense of like what their what the culture outside of their own interests looks like, uh, if that makes sense. It does. It does. But we have come to the end of our our main section. So true. I want to ask you, buddy, how was your week and how far in the WoW story have you gotten? Oh, how far in the WoW story have I gotten? I haven't done any. Uh, I have completed the game. Completing the, the the campaign rather, um, and I've been doing lots of side quests, but I have not been. I have not unlocked any of the post, because there's uh, there's more story after you hit max level. It, it locked behind renown. Is that right? Do you know? Uh, I think so. I mean, I haven't. I am. I'm at like roughly level seven for each of the factions. Yeah, so me, like... yeah, me too. I I have been playing a lot of other stuff. I mean, like, um, I guess I I did. On last Tuesday, I did all eight Mythic Zeros. I did my world tour, is what we call that. Um, so I did I did a world tour. I did everything on Baron. Baron is pretty high item level. He's like three something, uh, like three sixty something. Um, and um, and then I've just kind of been playing. Um, uh, I've just sort of been playing other characters. I'm trying to get a I'm trying to get a second character up. I want to play Kruva, the Frost Mage, because. Uh, I played a lot of Kruva in season three of Shadowlands, and I decided that Kruva is a lot of fun, um, and that Frostmage was a lot of fun, and I want to and I want to play it. So my second character is probably going to be Kruva, um, and uh, and I've been doing a lot of profession stuff. The thing I care most about right now in WoW is professions, even though I feel like I have sort of fucked myself um, in the in the sort of way that I have built my like character and the way these specialization points work. So. But the, the thing I wanted to ask you that I was waiting for next week is... Oh, sure. What did you think about the Calico storyline? Oh, I fucking hated it. I'm sorry. I, I'm i sorry. But, I hated it. But, buddy, buddy, he's going to the most important thing with family. It's about family. Yeah. <laughs> I hate Calico so much. I don't know. Is it Calico... <laughs> so, okay. So, first of all, Calico sucks as a, as a character. The origin of Calico's is that he is part of this, like, manga... I can't. How do I even fucking explain this? Oh, I should get my friend Devin to explain this. Um, she also really hates. So okay, all right, okay. So do you know the Sunwell? Yeah. So the Sunwell is this like font of arcane power that the Blood Elves had, right? Um, and then in Warcraft Three, Arthas marches the Lich King through. You know, like he he marches through Silvermoon. He cuts this big cigar. He resurrects Kelthazad 
through the Sunwell, the power of the Sunwell, which corrupts the Sunwell and it is no longer sort of like usable by the Blood Elves in order to sort of like feed their... Well, um, then, then High Elves, which is why they yes, become true. Blood Elves, right? Yeah, th yeah. Then High Elves to feed their arcane magic addiction. Um, and... Um, and they need to they need to find a source to like sate that addiction. That source eventually becomes fell magic from the Burning Legion, Kalthos. Like, uh, or I'm sorry, fell magic from Illidan, not the Burning Legion. Illidan is fighting against the Burning Legion, but he's working with Kalthos. Um, they're they're taking on fell magic. They call themselves Blood Elves. Their eyes turn green uh, instead of blue because they are they are essentially drinking fell magic now or whatever. Um, and at the end. At the end of the Burning Crusade, um, Kiljaden, who's like one of the one of the big leaders of the Burning Legion, tries to use the Sunwell to break into Azeroth, right? To to kind of teleport himself onto Azeroth directly, um, and the um, and in the Sunwell Plateau raid, you put you like you put a stop to him. Uh, Velen purifies the Sunwell with holy magic. The Sunwell is now this font of sort of the light and arcane magic, and it's sort of like fixed. It's this like fixed thing at this point, right? During that period between Warcraft 3 and Burning Crusade, there was a manga that came out, which featured the introduction of Calicos, um, which is called like the Sunwell Trilogy or something like that. And it's basically the story of how the raw... Ma arcane magical power of the Sunwell personified into a into like a little human girl, um, and Calicos as a blue dragon, and the blue dragon flight like safeguards the ley lines and the arcane power or whatever. Calicos is like the person who is like walking, like watching after that girl, and the whole thing has just very creepy like pedo vibes, and everybody fucking hated Calicos for that for that kind of reason. It was the most batshit thing. I mean, this is like 2006, obviously, right? Like, this is a long time ago. Um, it's just like the most batshit thing. Uh, but it does feature into WoW lore. Eventually, that little girl, her name is Anvina, she actually shows up if you in, in the Sunwell raid, and she side, sort of is killed in order to restart the Sunwell or whatever. Um, but whatever the case may be, that's the origin of Calicos. Then Calicos goes on to become Jaina's boyfriend, um... And sort of, like, take on the leadership of the Blue Dragon Flight after Maligos is killed, right? Uh, famously in Wrath of the Lich King, Maligos kind of goes crazy. He decides that mortals shouldn't have access to magic anymore. Um, and he goes on a murder spree. He's trying to kill all these, any, anybody who's using magic because he thinks they're, they're not entitled to it. Um, he's doing bad stuff with that. We kill him as a raid boss, right? Uh, there needs to be a new sort of aspect of blue magic. That aspect becomes kind of Calico's. I can appreciate that Calicos' story is actually pretty well written in, in the Azure span. I actually quite like the way that Calicos' story uh, interfaces with the the, Tux, the the Tuscar, where, like, you go and you hang out with the Tuscar, and the Tuscar are like, boy, we sure do love family. And Calicos is like, huh, you know what I should do? I should think about my family and, like, rally the, the remaining blue dragons, of which there are very few, um, to my to my side. They come, they save the day or whatever. Like, I think all of that is actually, like, structurally very good storytelling. I just fucking hate Calicos himself. He is such a piece of shit. I call him... I, 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 
to my friends, I say he's a cuck. I think he like he just like he's like a coward. He's like whiny and like self pitying, and he's just oh poor me. Oh my life is so hard. I'm just like shut the fuck up, Calicos, you bitch. I fuck ah. So, yes, I hate Caligos. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, man. What, what did you think of uh, Murloc? You know, the burning <laughs> Murloc or whatever, the, the Murloc king or... Um, Murloc, Murloc Deathwing. Yeah, Mur like, yeah, the, the, as, as Murloth, as, as it is where, Azeroth yeah. with all these Murlocs in it. Um, I actually do quite like Nosdormu. I think Nosdormu is actually really interesting. And probably Raphion is the best character so far in Dragonflight. Because, like, a, for some of the stuff, he just has sort of the most interesting offbeat personality. Like, Queen Alexstrasza doesn't do it. Like, I, you know, like, WoW just has so many of these characters who are just, like, basically good and, and sort of, like, noble, right? Um, and uh, and so, like, Alexstrasza I don't think is an interesting character. Uh, there's some stuff with Rathion Sibelian that I do think is interesting and I, and I like quite a lot. Um, and like I said, I think I think Rathion is kind of the most interesting because he is really, like, offbeat um, and has kind of, like, a lot going on. Uh, but I was surprised how much I cared about Nos Nosdormu. Um, as a like as a character, as this you know, for people in the chat who don't who don't necessarily know, Nosdormu is the aspect. He is the most powerful dragon of the Bronze Dragonflight, who safeguard time and like the time ways. Um, and one of the things that was revealed in the Cataclysm expansion is that Nosdormu will eventually become corrupted and evil and become the the aspect of the Infinite Dragonflight named Murazond, who is bad. Um, the Infinite Dragonflight are trying to corrupt the Timeways rather than protect them and sort of, you know, to do to do sort of, like, bad things. And the story in Thaldrassus surrounding Nosdormu kind of, like, having to kind of come to grips with this idea that, like, he can see the future and he knows he will eventually become corrupted and evil and he's like that's a that, that's like a tough thing that weighs on him right and then he's doing stuff to like save chromie this like other you know bronze dragon and he's like when that time comes i expect you to take me out back behind the barn and chromie's like listen buddy when that time comes i'm gonna figure out how to fix you and it's just like yeah, that yeah. was a very sweet I, moment I, I... I, I think I think the the thing, he's like I expect you to do what needs to be done, and she's like that means make it so it doesn't happen, right? Yeah, like, exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's just like oh, gives me that gives me that gives me some feels. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it is helped by. <laughs> and then, I, then he then he responds. He Mister was like, "Chromie, I have I have always been and will always be proud of you," which is just like, "Oh, thank you, Dad." <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Now, and, and there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I don't know, I'm having a very good time with the story in uh, in Dragonflight because a lot of these side quests. Have you done Tyvon, the side quest for the dog? Oh, with, with the dog, I just did that the other day. Yeah. Oh. I cried. I literally cried. <laughs> did you read the little like you can talk to him at the different points of the at like the different points of the thing and he has little gossip text and like um you know I like I don't even want I don't know that I want to spoil this because it's such a good sequence or whatever. Um yeah, this is the story about a really big dog in like the you know, like the centaur, these nomadic centaur clans. Um and they're trying to figure out what to do with him. Can he be a hunting dog? Well, not really. Can he be a shepherd dog? Well, not really, or whatever. And you eventually sort of figure out his place or whatever. But as you are, as you are like taking him around to try and train him or whatever, like if you if you talk to him when you're completing these quests or whatever, it'll say things like Tyvon realizes that you're disappointed in him 
and it makes him sad. And I'm just like, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to. I'm sorry, Taiwan. You know? And so eventually finding a spot where, like, he, he you know, can sort of uh, live his best life. Oh, feels so good. <laughs> Honestly, so I know it's super early, but my favorite side quest so far has been um, the one where, like, it's like the dwarf red dragon oh, that's, like, sitting on the edge. Everybody talks about this one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, it's easy to run into, right? It's, like, not, yeah. like, Tyvon, the Tyvon one I just came back to at some point, but, like, that one's, like, right there, and it's it's good, right? Like, it's, it's really good, right? You know, red dragon talking about how, like, his best friend black dragon, like, killed his family, and, like, you know, it's... It's, it's, it's a good quest. You should do it if you haven't done it. Yeah, I um, did not realize there was a follow-up to that quest. I People have talked a lot about that quest. I was like, oh, the, it's kind of a follow-up? Fun. Yeah, because you, you like go, you you get the little box or whatever, and there's apparently oh, yeah, a yeah. follow-up to that that I have not done. Um, okay, I haven't done the follow-up either, then, I guess. Like, I yeah. got the box, but I haven't done anything past that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that quest is one that gets highlighted. Uh, I actually don't sort of love that quest, to be honest with you, it, which is to say... It's interesting, and I like the kind of quietness of the moment, right? Um, Lou says she'll show it to me. Thank you, Lou. I appreciate yeah, I, it. Yeah, and I can appreciate kind of like the quietness of the moment. And I think when people praise that quest, that is really what they are talking about, right? That this is a thing where all you do is you just sit next to this guy as he's like looking out over his home or whatever. He hasn't been here for 10,000 years, um, and he just kind of like talks. And it's a very quiet, simple moment. And I think a lot of people really appreciate that in a game that is otherwise about like world-ending threats all, all, all of the sort of uh, all the sort of time. But um, but yeah, I, I I was like, I don't know that I think that this is great story. Like, I think this is a great moment, but I don't think it's great, like, storytelling necessarily, right? Like, I kind of don't want, I would not want a world in which WoW is constantly telling me to sit and read NPC dialogue for five minutes or whatever. But I think sure. ha- having that be once, like, as a once thing, like... In the otherwise, like it's perfect, right? It's like the little, it's a little yeah. pinch of spi- no, no. like spice to make the whole thing great. Does it make sense? So I will. I, yes, I I just disagree with your assertion. That, like, I think it's good storytelling because it is a one-off moment, right? Like, okay, sure. You no, know, yeah. yes, right. Like if if that was the entire, it was every side quest in the game. Then yes, sure, it's not. But like, yeah, like yeah. I, I would say Tyvon's quest is a good story, right? Because it, yeah. you know, like it. You go, you do a bunch of different things. It has progression and a sort of like a build up into a climax into, you know, a denouement, right? Like that. That's it's kind of like it kind of it's sort of like a plot, I guess, is really what I'm saying. Like Taiban's story has this plot. The Red Dragon story, I was like, this doesn't like this is a great moment in sort of like the the overall wash of the thing. But I don't know that I think that it is a great story. It's like one single good quest or whatever. But like I said, I have not done the follow-up and I might change that opinion if I do the follow-up and I like that. It, that's cool and interesting or something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, so um, well, can I ask, anything else? What, what, what have you been doing in, uh, in engineering? Uh, like, do you have a specialization? Have you chosen a specialization? Yeah. So my specialization is Tinker's One. Uh, the answer is not much just because, like, I've been mostly building professional equipment just because it requires so much rousing order. And there's no enemy, like I discovered, there's no enemies to kill a farm it, right? You have to find Titan. Titan touch nodes. Uh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, or at least not that I found, not that I like, the article I found about farming is, like, fly around Tyr's Temple and, like, there's a bunch of Titan touch nodes that spawn there, right? Like, it's... 
that is like really put a damper on my ability to like do a lot of stuff. What do, would you just buy it off the auction house? It's expensive. It's like two fifteen a rousing order. Um, okay. I need like typical recipes like three three awakened orders. So that's thirty. So that's like what like six k. Um, I did sell I uh, a lot of rousing. I sold like fifty thousand. I made fifty thousand gold by selling all my rising order. I was like, I, I don't have a need for this. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> hey, I get it. Right? That's the market. I just need, yeah. you know, I just. But it's gotten to the point where like I am obsessively checking every node that I fly over, and if it's a Titan, if it's a Titan touch thing, I you know all things stop, and I go get that. that you know, yeah, I think I have more because I'm a primal miner on Baron at least. Um, right now, I actually have three different miners who are three different sort of specializations, right? Like on Tonric, he is a smelter, and so I can make the really high quality mats by like smelting low quality mats together. Um, <clears throat> And then on That's Kruva, no energy, right? yeah, and then on Kruva, he just has the basic mining, and so his thing is he just gets the biggest sort of yields out of the the, the simple things. But Baron's thing is I get a million of these rousing whatevers because, like, I have specialized into primal mining, like elemental mining. Um, yeah, and, no, I am. So, yeah, that that is that is my next thing, right? Because like I I was like, oh, perception seems good. It's like a very base, good all around thing. I've got one point left. To get like mine on the back of your dragon, um, oh sure. And so I want I want to get that last point, and then I also put thirty in the perception because I'm like, oh, high quality mats, right? That'll be good, long term. And yep. then I'm gonna go all into elemental, um, and I kind of wish, wish that I had I had changed over to to, to primal, um, but uh, I haven't. Uh, so or or, or I, you know, I, I, it's just it feels like it's so hard to kind of get to the. Uh, yeah, get extra um, stuff there. You know, get get extra knowledge. Yeah, because you only um, get. I think it's fourteen points per week, which is like. Is there like a limit? Yeah, you, you only get you get, only get a certain number of points per week. Yeah, you do because you have these weekly quests, right? Um, and then I think someone told me that you only get four of the drop. Maybe you get five of the drop. Um, really? Yeah. So it's one from a profession thing. You can buy it from a scribe. The like it's a book. It increases your knowledge by one. You can use that book once a week, um, uh, which I need to do for like all my professions. And then there is a um, there is uh, the three quests. There's three quests for every profession each week. Um, so that's nine, right? And then you have these individual things that you like pick up. Yeah, like, drop off of yeah. Yeah, no, it's like sorry. oh, like special, super special, glimmering ore, and then. You hit it and you increase your knowledge by one. So yeah, yeah, that is actually one of my least favorite quests. Is the engineering one? It's like collect twenty explosive ash from phoenixes or whatever, Oof. and you, and you're just like flying around trying to get them to aggro you, and they don't. It's not like it drops off everyone. One. Yeah, like, those oh, quests are real tough. Those quests are complicated. There's a lot. There's a lot going on there. Um, uh, I've done the jewel crafting one, which is finding 25 of this thing that drops off the Jardin in Waking Shore, like a little gem fragment. Not everything does one and you have to find 25. It's like, I was, I was like sitting there for like a half an hour, just like killing these things over and over and over again. The blacksmithing one was kind of okay though. The blacksmithing one is you have to get like magma blood or something from, uh, you know, creatures, like lava creatures. And there are these little packs of lava slugs, like little three, you know, sometimes instead of like yeah. one mob, it'll be three little mobs and you kind of AOE them instead of like single target yeah. them. Those each have a chance of dropping it. So you just go kill like 
a couple of lava slugs. You get that one real quick, but yeah. What's what is the um, what's the mining one? Since you're, what what is the you turn in a bunch of stuff? You know, like you right. craft a bunch of stuff. Um, the one is. Uh, yeah, the, the one was just turning a bunch of severing. It's like okay, I've got like seven billion of it. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Like, um, I don't remember what the other ones are. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm. I just. Oh man, I wish I. I just, it's good to know that like the reason I'm not like I'm like sitting there like my, I'm like mining everything I see now because I'm like oh I'll get another drop and I'll like get my last point. And it's like no. No, that's good to know that, I, that it's yeah like the to... first one drops literally the first one that drops each week uh but like i said i think it's uh i don't know i just think it's one. Oh, and actually something else you might want to do have you checked the r the the artisan consortium rep vendor yes i have bought out the ones that i can buy okay so yeah yeah okay well never mind that was my other thing i was like maybe you yeah, just get yeah. 15 free points sitting there for you right uh, um <coughs> yeah because i i so there's like no engineering work orders and I don't have the recipe. Like, there's, like, one or two, and there's, like, I don't have the recipes for them. So, you know, fuck me, right? Like, um, I spend a lot of my time fishing because, you know, that's fun. Yeah, um, I, I, I don't know if the work order system is just, like, premature, right? Like, we haven't really gotten into the swing of things. The raid isn't open yet. It's only been out two weeks or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, or if maybe the system is bad doesn't work yeah you know what i mean well yeah. we'll see i did have an interaction though where somebody was like hey i need a blacksmith to make this thing and i said okay and i we had a whole interaction and he was like oh you know like thanks or whatever he's like what what quality can you do and i was like yeah just send it to like this you know character or whatever um and that that was like neat that like that i feel like is what the system is built to kind of create right um and sort of incentivize um but you know yeah no like I have the specialization to get the combat res tinker for, for engineers. I have the specialization. I don't have enough rousing water to actually make one. <laughs> um, um, so you know, I'm I'm hoping. Lou says in the chat, "Yeah, fraternity service or work order system seems doomed." I think that's actually gonna be a big problem. I mean, I've seen it even on other servers, right? You know, I have I have friends on Emerald Dream, uh, which is a huge server, um, and they say their work orders are completely empty as well. So. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny because this is something that people have talked about for a long time. The professions could be like a much, much better, a much, much bigger part of the game. And I do th hope that this, you know, kind of materializes because I really like the idea, specifically around gear. I like the idea that I go and I get a mat, you know, and I and I take that to a crafter, and that crafter, you know, like makes me a special bespoke piece of gear that's really powerful. Um, uh, I think that 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 like system works like well in theory and it's and it's really sort of interesting but i also think that um you know i think players might be so obsessed with perfection this is something that happened with my friend drudeball right where he was like i'm trying to find somebody who can make this thing at the highest quality i was like nobody nobody would be able to do that yet you because like people need to skill up people need to skill up their whatever their blacksmithing their um well, there's specialization inside. Yeah, of it, right? there's specialization yeah. inside of it. Like you're just not gonna, you're just not gonna find somebody who has the ability to do that thing yet. Um, and uh, and I just think that that's kind of interesting. That's that's kind of complex. But you know, we'll see. I'm I'm interested uh, as always to sort of see how all of this stuff plays out uh, in in practice. Yeah. Um. Do you want to talk about other stuff? We talked about it for a bunch. What else did I do? I played Dark Tide. 
Dark Tide, people are shitting on Dark Tide, and I actually kind of agree with them a little, but it also is just sort of, like, fun. The, the thing I did on Dark Tide that's interesting, one of the modifiers in these missions in, like, uh, in Dark Tide is called Lights Out, where they just basically turn off all the ambient lights, and m some guns have a flashlight on them, right? Um, and it is maybe the perfect thing. It is so cool to be, like, going through this thing and it's completely dark but all you have is your flashlight right and you're hearing stuff and you can see like the glow of their their eyes or whatever uh perfectly 40k right um i'm not even a 40k guy uh and i was just like oh i actually get it i understand why people like 40k lore like this is this is a really sweet kind of like environmental thing but yeah i mean there's a bunch of problems those servers are unstable as fuck it feels kind of unfinished etc i don't have any more complete Makes thoughts sense. How do you feel about the Diablo 4 Battle Pass? Yeah, so, I, you know, I kind of don't know why they have the Battle Pass, right? Like, it seems it seems like, it seems, so I, I was thinking about this, right? Like, it seems like Diablo 4 is the type of game where you, like, even more so than something like, wow, where the stuff that you want to show off is the stuff that you've earned not like stuff that like you like you've earned by like doing specific things rather than stuff that you've earned by kind of like just doing enough stuff in a month. Yep. Right? Like um I guess this is it's not unprecedented, right? Like um like what's the what's the the other the big Diablo like that everybody plays? Um Path of, Path of Exile. Exile. Path of Exile has paid for cosmetics. Um and so I don't think it's unprecedented or like disqualifying, but like I feel this way about WoW too, right? Like, the my least valuable things are the things I've gotten as like pre-order bonuses or like, um, you know, or like you know, like the sub the sub rewards or whatever, right? Yeah, like, like I care much more about my AOTC mount that I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, or even even like stuff that isn't like quite like AOTC, but just like completion stuff, right? Like stuff I've like you know stuff that I've put together. Um, and so I I just kind of don't get it um but you know it won't stop me from playing the game but it has given me pause on the pre-order for it like i don't know if i'll get like the like i don't know it's 20 dollars more for like the four days of pre-access and i don't know if i actually care um yeah we'll that, that is something that i am also thinking about um i feel like the thing that's interesting with the battle pass is somebody somebody was like just give it a subscription make it an mmo essentially this is what you want diablo to be you want it to be an MMO. It doesn't make any sense for it to have a battle pass. And I was like, I do sort of agree with that, to be honest. It sort of seems that way. And I understand, you know, obviously Diablo seasons are a thing. They have been a season for a long time. And I understand the impulse. Oh, we'll just add a battle pass that monetizes these seasons. But it's just like, I like, I don't know that I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about any of that. Yeah. Maybe if the Battle Pass was exceptionally cheap, I would be on board for that. If you sold me on a season Battle Pass that was like, okay, if you want to play this season, it's five bucks. You know, what whatever the number is. Um, it's five dollars. You pay your five dollars. And that's the thing that gives you access to kind of like all this stuff. I think there is, this is sort of me saying, there is a line in which it is cheap enough that I wouldn't care. And it would be, and it would be kind of fine. And I would be like on board with that but a full price battle pass does i'm like mm, i don't think so yeah. right yeah I, apparently there's like a free battle pass that contains like all kind of like the functional stuff which like i guess kind of makes sense that reminds me of like the destiny battle pass which yep. is like you know you get like 
functional stuff along the way and the season pass is kind of like your, it, it kind of acts like your subscription fee yep. maybe that's the model they're aiming for but I don't know. I do like the battle pass as a way to sort of like provide goals and like directives to do, right? Like I think that the the situation of a battle pass where like like I said, I think I've talked a lot about how I like the Overwatch battle pass. I love the Overwatch battle pass. I if every battle pass was like the Overwatch battle pass, I would be so fucking happy, right? Um and even then I I don't even think I'm going to do the season 2 one just cuz I don't think I have the time for it, but um it provides this direction, right? Like it, and it provides this kind of metered out sense of progression and the goals to be working for right putting a thing like a skin at the end of it right like i i think it is that genji skin that i got off the battle pass is actually very cool and it is because i worked through all of those you know like all of those tiers in order to get it right that it is so cool um uh but the you know i don't know it's just it's it's weird with diablo because i think really what it comes down to is i don't value cosmetics in diablo basically at all Right, yeah. I care a lot about the cosmetics in WoW. I care about it in a game like Overwatch, right? But it's just like, like, do I, do I really care what my like little tiny guy, my isometric guy looks like? I, I can't even fucking see him, you know. Yeah, and I like, I think there's some, I think there's something there, right? Like, I, I, I got into some cosmetic stuff at some point, but I also kind of like, partly like want to display the power on on hand, right? Like that, that seems to be like a bigger thing. Yep, but. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. All right. Only things I want to talk about with my week, and I'll try and be quick about it, is I saw Violent Night, which is a, uh, I think I think it's like a combination of like, it's like a, like it very explicitly references Home Alone, but I think the bigger influences is like, what if Die Hard was actually a Christmas movie, um, as opposed to just kind of incidentally being a Christmas movie. Um, uh, the premise is that. There is a hostage situation with a rich family. Um, and, like the, the little girl is, is pretty innocent, like the little girl, like the granddaughter of the family. Um, and actual Santa Claus gets mixed up in it, and he has to save the day. Um, and he's like a depressed Santa Claus that thinks the kids are all shits. And, you know, it is a very stupid movie. David Harvard plays Santa Claus, but it is so much better than it has any right to be. It is so much fun. I laughed. I thought it was... Like, the, the plot is, like, a coherent, right? Like, I'm not going to say it's going to win any awards or anything, but, like, it makes sense. Um, it's, a, it's a, I would give it, like, like, it's a, it's a fun movie, and whenever it's streaming, that, it'll be, it'll be a fun movie to watch uh, at Christmas, right? Like, one that, like, you know, you don't think too hard about. Um, but I want to recommend it. The other thing I did is I finished out the third season of Community with my girlfriend, um, and man, it is so good. The Glee episode, just, like, <laughs> Perfection. Other things like you know, you know the the first D and D episode you know famously gets uh, gets you know removed from Netflix for blackface. In the third season, uh, freaking um, Pierce like wears brownface in an episode, and no one seems to care. He he does his Swami impression during oh, the. You're right. <laughs> yeah, it's. Like and that's like actual brownface, right? Like yeah. you know, like I, I think pulling the D and D episode is categorically wrong, right? Like, I don't, you know, like this is one of my. We've talked about this before. One of the things that bothers me is like the way that academic terms have sort of like trickled into the culture, 
taken on a lot of sort of this like extra political weight. The like cultural appropriation is a really good example of this. It is a term that describes a thing that is happening. It's a neutral term. doesn't have any moral weight. But when I say it, it like most people think of it in a condemnatory way, right? Like it gets used yeah. to attack things, right? And attack people. And it's like, no, this is, it's academic. Like you don't think about it in those terms, right? Um, and I absolutely think that the issues with blackface that are real and that I have lots of problems with, right, are not represented when somebody is essentially cosplaying a drow. That's not fucking blackface. And it is so dumb to think that it is, right? And I'm pulling episode yeah. of Community for it, right? Um, and, um, uh, but yeah, doing actual brownface. Uh, that is it's, uh, that is a perfect the the idea that that episode is still up is the perfect perfect example of why I hate this shit. <laughs> one of them, one of them, which do is not accurate like the, and doesn't fit the criteria, is the yeah. thing that gets pulled, and the other one stays up when it does like, actually fit the criteria yeah. and is the reason why we would actually Pierce. say brownface is bad. Pierce is being racist. Now I you know I might argue that like you know. The point Pierce is not supposed to be good. Sure. Right? Like, yeah, sure. But like, you know, that's that's a separate discussion. But like, yes, to your point, if I were going to agree with either of them, I would agree with the Pierce one over the 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 the, the Chang one. <laughs> yeah, no. God, that's really funny. That's uh, perfect. I mean, the new thing is with I don't know, I, we don't have to talk about this. We don't have any time. It's like in terms like gaslight. P every <laughs> nobody nobody is ever just a dick to you anymore. They're abusive. You know, nobody ever just lies to you anymore. They're gaslighting you. You know what I mean? I, this, this is my new thing. Version no of one's this. ever gaslighted you, buddy. It's not <laughs> yeah. a thing. Gaslighting isn't real. You made it up. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I think there's a word. I think it's called like the euphemism treadmill where like, like, you know, as euphemisms kind of like lose their like potency, like you kind of naturally escalate. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, wow. That's actually an interesting concept. Yes, that would make plenty of sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it um, is not just that, that you know, I don't know, whatever. We're not talking about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, this is, this is, we're well over time and this is fraught. So, you know, I'm going to say, uh, unless you, uh, just Community Season 3, very, very good. Uh, I had forgotten that, like, um, Pierce's half-brother is played by Gus Fring. Uh, Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. There is weird cross-pollination, actually. The yeah. uh, Dan Harmon and Vince Gilligan, the creator of Breaking Bad, are, like, weirdly really good friends. And, well, like... That's that's why, um, um, what's his name, is in, uh, is in, like, the fifth or sixth season? Yeah, exactly. Oh. The guy who played... Jonathan Banks, the guy who plays Mike Ehrmantraut, he actually left Community to go make Better Call Saul when Better Call Saul, you know, like, obviously featured him as a as a main character for so long. Um, and, uh, but, like, there's an episode... Did you do the episode with the VCR cowboy game? Or is that VC not in the season? VCR cowboy game. Okay, there's an episode with a VCR cowboy game where it's, like... Annie and Abed are playing this VCR cowboy game or something for some reason. Um, and Annie gets really, really into it. But the cowboy in that is Vince Gilligan, like the, the oh, series okay. creator for Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Yeah. No, I mean, there, there, that, 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 the, I think the third season is probably peak community. I mean, I, I have really? to watch the rest Interesting. of it. Interesting. I have always said season two, but maybe season three for sure. I, I, I had bigger moments, I think, in season three. Like, okay. I mean, it, it also kind of like... I think Pierce is worse than, like, season three, but, mm -hmm. like, you know, like, the Dean's half-and-half half outfit, I think, is, like, <laughs> the best outfit he has. Um, um, yeah. It's also where, like, it kind of starts to go off the rails, right, in terms of, like, the plot, right? Yeah. Like, the, you know, the, the metal plot is, like, 
you know, the kind of like uh, Troy is like the Jesus of the air conditioner repairman type like subplot is like it's nuts, but it's like, you know, it's it makes sense in kind of in context, I guess. But like, you know. <laughs> I, lo I do love that. It, there's a lot of stuff I feel like that are ascended bits. Do you know what I mean? Like the thing with Troy is an ascended. It was a bit from earlier seasons that kind of gets codified into the lore, if that makes sense, of of like community. I feel like there's a lot of that in, in season three, um, which I guess is maybe part of why I would say I like season two better because I feel like season two is setting up a lot of those bits. Whereas season three, four, or five, right, like they're kind of cannibalizing them in a way. Um, uh, cannibalizing is a little too mean of a term. They're, but you know, like it feels like there are fewer things that are being set up and paid off, and mostly it is mostly just sort of paid payoffs, if that makes sense. Um, that makes but anyway, sense. well, we can talk about this in our in our community episode. Uh, the one thing I want to mention: are, what are we doing for Avatar? Because Avatar is this weekend, Avatar Way of the Water. I'm so fucking excited. I haven't bought my tickets, but I have to. Uh, the critics were like, this movie is so good. And I was like, what? I thought everybody was going to say this movie is dog shit. Because, you know, the culture primes people to shit on things, I think, in a way. Like, I, I've made the argument in the past that, like, part of the the backlash to something like Batman vs. Superman was, like, the culture was primed to shit on that movie because of... Uh, sort of like where where it was at that specific time, and I think the culture has been shitting on Avatar for a long time. And I am I am James Cameron pilled. Okay, I'm Avatar pilled. All right, and I feel so fucking vindicated reading all of these film critics who are like, "Ah, oh, God, James Cameron does it again." I'm like, "Yeah, buddy, the dude has like." He's been the top-selling director like four times in a row. Well, not in a row, but four times, four different times, right? Uh, three different times, I think, actually. Terminator 2, Titanic, and Avatar, the three different times. Um, so, fuck yeah. God, I want Way of the Water to be so good. Yeah, uh, I've got my ticket. I'm going to see it Saturday, so maybe that's next Monday's podcast. Hell yeah. Okay, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I think that's everything I have. Uh uh, do you want to talk about anything else? Or should I wrap it up? Nope, we can wrap up. That's fine. Yeah, almost two hours later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if you want to t uh, tell us what you think about anything we talked about on this podcast, reach us at games at gmail.com or podcast at simdurstplaygames.com. You can follow us at twitch.tv slash games where these go out live. Um, next week, hopefully, we will have youtube.com slash at games. I will double check that. It is in the description. Um, it will be going out live dually thanks to the alert of our social media manager, uh, Zhao. He alerted us that we should be doing that. Um, and it would have been done today, except that apparently YouTube requires 24 hours uh, from a request for to going live. And I did it literally like five minutes after this episode was supposed to start. So, you know, um, it's, it's, not, it's not happening this week. But next week it should go out live on YouTube as well. Um, what else is there? Uh, uh, we have we have we're on YouTube. We're you know we're we have the recordings of the episode. We have SoundCloud is where these these the uh, audio versions of these tracks are held, and you can get the get us wherever podcasts are found. Leave us a review. We've got a Patreon. We've got a website that has nothing but the the podcast feed right now. Um, that's everything I have. But do you have anything you're looking to promote? Uh, I have. I guess I do have one thing that I'm looking to promote, which is that this Friday I'll be doing a special stream for rain world we talked a lot about rain world downpour if you guys want to like see it in action i'm doing a special stream for rain world downpour expedition mode on friday at noon pacific so yeah nice all right well 
Uh, with that, I'm going to say, uh, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners. Bye.